To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So I'd like to see the U.S. and other countries work towards shared prosperity, but I don't see it as a, a contest between one country and another. I see it as a contest between good policies and bad policies worldwide. Hello and welcome back to the Bloomberg Benchmark Podcast. It's Thursday, September 8th, 2016. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor at Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, executive editor for Global Economics at Bloomberg in New York. So, so Dan, how did you get to work today? Did you come in a driverless car? I came to work, Scott, in a very driver-full car. It was a green taxi that I hailed uh, close to my apartment in Brooklyn. I had to repeat where I was going three times, including the part about 58th. There's just something about the Aussie accent that didn't gel. Uh, Well, I feel for you, Dan. Uh, I I didn't have a driverless car, too. I still have my 2000 Honda Accord uh, getting, getting me where I need to go. So we're not quite there yet, but... Our next guest might have something to say about the direction the technology is going and how it's going to impact our society. Uh, two weeks ago, we had on Robert Gordon, the economics professor at Northwestern, who believes that the best days of American growth are behind us because we've already had the kinds of inventions that truly changed our world, like indoor plumbing and electricity. And joining us now is Eric Brynjolfsson, who's a professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and director of its Initiative on the Digital Economy and co-author of the book, The Second Machine Age. Now, the subtitle of that book sets it up as a counterpoint to Professor Gordon. Work, progress and prosperity in a time of brilliant technologies. The author is not underselling it. We'll get to that in a second. Eric, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you both, Dan and Scott. Now, Eric, it's been three years since you debated Gordon at a TED Talk, and we're still stuck in this rut of weak productivity. Uh, America's having trouble breaking out of this 2% growth, and more and more economists seem to be coming around to the view that maybe we are in a low-growth era, that maybe Larry Summers has a point after he's harped on the idea of secular stagnation for the last few years. Has your optimism been dimmed at all by these kinds of developments? Not really. And I'll I'll tell you why. I mean, first, I want to say that I I very much enjoyed having these discussions with Bob Gordon. We're friends going way back. And uh, I I loved his book. I thought it was brilliant. And I agree with about 90% of it. The part we disagree with, the part that people love to talk about, which maybe is, is the most important part, is not what happened in the past, but what's likely to happen in the future. And, uh, Bob takes some of the, the pessimism of the, of the recent past, the, the low productivity that we've had in the past decade or so, and uh, uses it to bolster his argument that the best days are behind us. And uh, as Larry Summers and others have pointed out, we have been in a low growth era for some time. However, I think much better days are ahead of us. And my optimism comes not from extrapolating what happened with productivity recently. It comes from going out and visiting companies. 
Um, in, in particular, I think we should remember that this is not the first time people talked about secular stagnation. The term was actually coined by Alvin Hansen back in the 1930s, uh, another really bad period for growth. And he basically said, as Bob Gordon says today, that, that the great inventions were all behind us. Uh, people were depressed. He pointed out that there wasn't more land that we could take advantage of. Population growth was slowing and ran through some great inventions that you know had already been discovered and, and didn't think of any new ones ahead of us. Well, in Alvin Hansen's case, it turned out that he was 180 degrees wrong. Literally the best three decades we've ever had so far were right after uh, Alvin uh, promulgated the idea of secular stagnation. The 40s, 50s, and 60s were just blockbuster decades for growth and productivity. And I think we should take that as, as a warning and, and be a little humble about what we think will be going, what will happen going forward. Productivity is really what drives living standards more than uh, population growth or any of the other uh, factors. And productivity is inherently unpredictable. Economists sometimes call it a measure of our ignorance because it's the residual that's left over after you account for all the things that you can measure, like labor and capital. So both in theory and in practice, it's, it's very hard to predict productivity. Um, after I debated Bob Gordon, I did a little uh, exercise. I took a, all the 10-year periods we have on record and compared the productivity growth in one 10-year period to the productivity growth in the next 10-year period. And uh, guess what the correlation was from one decade to the next? There was none. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was absolutely none. Um, you know, Sometimes it, you had much better decades, like after Alvin Hansen's uh, discussion of secular stagnation. Sometimes uh, you had correlation, but on average, it turned out to be a big zero. And uh, so just saying, hey, we've had some bad years, ergo, it's going to keep getting bad, that, that, that doesn't have much empirical support or, as I said, theoretical support. So, Eric, how has all this escaped or sailed below the popular economic narrative? We're beset with the use of terms like new normal, quote-unquote slow recovery, quote-unquote wageless recovery. This all seems at odds with what we're hearing a lot of at the moment. Can you explain that? Well, it depends who you talk to. And there's no question we've had some very low growth, both in productivity and overall economic growth. And I think that's legitimate to point out. And there's a lot of things we can do in the, to combat some of the cyclical problems we've been having. I think people still underestimate the, the scale and scope of the Great Recession and the cyclical factors that are still slowing us down. Um, so I, I wouldn't uh, belittle those concerns. But I also wouldn't uh, use them to extrapolate into what's happening with technological progress. That's a whole different ballgame. Technological progress is very different from the underutilization of labor and capital in the economy. If you under want to understand what's going on with technological progress, you need to talk to technologists. And I spend a lot of time doing that in places like Silicon Valley and, of course, here at, at MIT. And uh, maybe it's escaped the popular discourse in, in some parts of uh, the country, but among technologists, uh, people are very optimistic. Uh, people like Bill Gates say that the innovation has never been faster. I was just back from uh, a two-week visit to, uh, to Silicon Valley meeting with a lot of the, the tech leaders, and, and they continue to be very, very optimistic, and, and they feel like there are some great things that they are making investments in. And I think if you look at the broader market, it's also pretty bullish on technology. Um, what are the, the five most valuable companies in America? Well, they're all tech companies. They are um, Apple, Alphabet or Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Amazon. 
these are tech companies and uh, their sales are growing rapidly. Their profits are enormous, the biggest in, in history. And investors must be very bullish because they are uh, putting their, their uh, valuations at, at pretty decent levels. So that suggests to me that maybe inside the Beltway um, or in other places, uh, people aren't optimistic about technology. But I hear a different story when I visit technologists. So I'm, is there any single invention that you see out there or a couple inventions that, that could really change the world? You know, you talk a lot about driverless cars, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, things like that in your in your book. Are things like that going to really boost productivity? Or do we have to think of a combination of these inventions like you talk about as well? I think it's both some core technologies and the recombination of these technologies. And if I were forced to say the ones that I'm most excited about right now, I would have to say the broad cluster of artificial intelligence, particularly what I sometimes call the second wave of the second machine age, which is this ability for machines to learn on their own how to solve problems uh, using neural nets, deep learning, reinforcement learning. And that is what's enabling some of these inventions. Uh, you talked about driverless cars, and uh, we featured them at the beginning of our book, and, and some people kind of made fun of us for being very science fiction-y back in 2014. But they're happening even faster than we predicted, and for that matter, faster than I think most of the technologists even predicted. Uh, Singapore is rolling out driverless taxis. Actually, they rolled them out last week uh, using some MIT technology. Uber has some driverless cars in uh, Pittsburgh this month. And uh, they still have a human sitting in the front seat just to kind of keep an eye on it. But uh, the technology is happening pretty rapidly. And that's driven by these machine learning systems that uh, have vastly improved vision. When we wrote the book, humans could see better than machines. Now, in many tasks, machines are much better, for instance, at recognizing street signs or uh, uh, interpreting uh, images uh, in big databases like ImageNet. The same technologies vastly improved uh, voice recognition, and even in mundane things that we don't hear that much about, like um, power use in data centers. Uh, Google's DeepMind team, a group of AI researchers, turned their uh, technology on their own data centers and uh, very quickly found that they were able to run them 15% more efficiently. Um, they're working to diagnose diseases better. So what we're doing is taking this core technology of artificial intelligence machine learning and combining it with knowledge in lots of different areas to create new products and services. Eric, I'm glad you mentioned the Beltway a little while ago. The sort of technological advances that you're talking about seem to be running parallel to or transcending the political process. Is there anything that could go wrong or right with this essentially optimistic view after the election? Oh, very much so. I can see a lot of ways this can go wrong. You know, technology is a catalyst for bigger changes, but by itself, technology doesn't raise living standards. It requires a host of complementary innovations, just as it did in the Industrial Revolution. Uh, investments in education, reorganization of work, new policies. I don't see us being nearly as good at those complementary innovations or nearly as fast at those complementary innovations as we have been in the core technologies. And the political system doesn't give me a lot of optimism. I mean, that's the part that, if anything, I'm more depressed about than it was in the past. And that shows up in, in some really alarming statistics that we highlighted in, in the, uh, Andy and I highlighted in our book, The Second Machine Age, um, like the stagnation of median income. It's bumped up a little bit the past year, but it's still lower now, significantly lower now than it was back in the year 2000. Um, that's income at the 50th percentile. Overall, 
income of the economy, overall GDP per person, is higher, much higher than it was. So how is that possible that median income is lower? Well, that's because it's become more unequal. There are a lot of people who have jobs, a lot of particularly routine information processing jobs, that aren't as much in demand as they were a decade or two ago. Um, there's a variety of reasons for that, but one of the most important ones is the machines can do a lot of those jobs better, like uh, travel agents or routine tax preparation or, or just a lot of clerks and, and middle managers that used to shuffle uh, a lot of paper. Uh, machines are getting really good at that, uh, reading legal documents, etc. That's a big concern, and we need to rethink our policies, retrain people, boost entrepreneurship to help invent new goods and services, uh, and, and people need to work harder at their own skills. And, and educate themselves so that they'll be more prepared for the kinds of jobs that machines don't do as well. Now, does, is that what you're trying to do with this competition, uh, inclusive innovation competition? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. So, you know, we don't want to just talk about it um, and research it. We wanted to take an active role. So uh, here at MIT, uh, we've got a, a research center called the Initiative on the Digital Economy, and we've launched an inclusive in innovation competition to recognize and reward the companies that are doing what I just described, that are using technology to involve more people in the workforce, to create more shared prosperity. I've been reviewing those applications along with a, an all-star lineup of judges. That is a cause for optimism because there are just so many uh, amazing entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs and uh, for-profit entrepreneurs and people working with uh, labor and with technology that are in the process of reinventing our economy. So that's what we need to see more of. We need to encourage it. Um, sadly, broadly speaking, um, entrepreneurship has not been keeping up with technology. Uh, great work by Haltewanger and Steve Davis and others has pointed out that we haven't had as dynamic economy as we used to have. So so that, that would be where I'd want to work harder. And uh, if we do that, I think median incomes will recover. Now, now that that brings us to a related issue, which is the government's role in all of this. Paul Krugman, for example, who you cite in your book, is a fan of government borrowing at low interest rates for infrastructure. There's also an issue with government support for R&D. What role do, does the government play in the second machine age? Yeah, you know, I think there's too many people who try to make it an either or, either the government does or the private sector. I think it's got to be a both and. Um, the government has an absolutely essential role in basic R&D, uh, helping set standards, uh, provide the basic infrastructure. You know, the Internet itself started as a government project. And so on top of that, there was a bunch of companies that made billions of dollars making the Internet more relevant to consumers and more useful for businesses. I think we got to continue that spirit of uh, government focusing on basic R&D and infrastructure and also boosting education and uh, then making it easier for companies to build on that foundation to create wealth. Much of the second machine age appears centered around the United States. How is America placed relative to other large economies in this next golden era of tech and productivity? I think one of the advantages the United States has is it's uh, encouraged a lot of the kinds of entrepreneurship, not as much as it should or could, but still, it's encouraged it in a way that a lot of other countries haven't. It had a relatively well-educated workforce and one that uh, has a lot of creativity. But this is not really a, a one nation versus another nation kind of question. These innovations are largely boundaryless, 
And I just just back from Helsinki, where there's some amazing people working at companies like Supercell, uh, creating billions of dollars of value with just a, a handful of uh, engineers. Uh, Stockholm is another example. Uh, amazing things happening in London, in Tokyo, in uh, Shenzhen, in Bangalore. If you're bright and you have an idea and you have access to the internet, you can reach a, a billion people and, and do amazing things in a way you couldn't have previously. Uh, this is a very new era. I had an undergraduate student who wrote a little app. He said he took him a few weeks, and uh, in a few months he had a million users. That's something that wouldn't have happened 10 or 20 years ago, and it, it really has lowered the boundaries to innovation quite a bit. And we all stand to gain from it, regardless of where those in innovators are located. But it sounds like you're definitely not a U.S. declinist. No, I, I mean, it's not, and again, it's not the U.S. versus other countries. I, I'm pretty optimistic because I see such amazing technologies in the pipeline. I'm concerned because it's not automatic that those technologies are going to benefit everybody or benefit people more broadly. So I'd like to see the U.S. and other countries work towards shared prosperity, but I don't see it as a, a contest between one country or another. I see it as a contest between good policies and bad policies worldwide. Scott's now, about to tell you about a real-life technological challenge he faced on the weekend with his car. That's right. A few days ago, my car's battery died while I was out with my family. Um, you know, this might illustrate a couple of our issues. I was able to search easily for an open service shop using Google Maps, but I still had to trudge there and wait a while to get the battery installed. And, you know, just the fact that the battery runs out, that's another issue that you point to in your book. We haven't developed the kinds of battery technologies uh, that we have in other kinds of information technology. We're still using the same technology as decades ago to power cars. We haven't really made full advance in, in that yet. There's no equivalent of Uber for car repairs like this. Is this a, a bottleneck in the economy? Do, do we have to wait until we can get driverless cars that can charge batteries that last forever? There are thousands of bottlenecks, and that's one of them, uh, or as entrepreneurs call them, opportunities. Um, <laughs> Uber for car repair. I think that uh, there's probably uh, going to be a bunch of business plans submitted to our VC friends uh, after this podcast. Uh, I would sign up for that. And uh, that's something that our mobile infrastructure makes easier to handle than previously. I was just looking at some charts on battery technologies, and I was astonished that it's, it's really started improving quite a bit lately. Um, you know, uh, Elon Musk is bringing on the Gigafactory that's going to drive down production costs quite a bit. And in, in Finland, they're thinking of developing an even cheaper battery factory. So uh, I think we have a lot of barriers to overcome. Um, this is a, a theme that I write about in my research a lot, that, that when someone makes a big invention like electricity, the steam engine, or the microprocessor, then uh, thousands, if not millions, of other people have to make uh, complementary innovations that make it really useful. And that's the process we're going through right now, whether it's with electric vehicles and self-driving cars or mobile telephony or artificial intelligence. All right, Professor. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We'll leave it there. It's been a pleasure. So we've now heard from both Gordon and Brynjolfsson. Who do you think is right? Well, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, maybe both of them could be right. But, you know, there's... there's uh, they, but they both raised some pretty strong points uh, about whether the, the best days are behind us or whether, you know, there's really no correlation between what's happened before and what will happen in the future. It's like they say in the markets, uh, past performance is, is no indication of, of the future. 
So it, it just depends if we're in that age. And, and maybe we could have these innovations and, and still, you know, and not have growth or growth without innovations. I was struck by Eric's upbeat tone, and that comes through in the book. Scott, I'm wondering if the period we're in now is kind of analogous to the early 1990s. The popular narrative was that America was washed up. There was a rising Asian power, which was going to crush us. Jobless recovery, wageless recovery. And yet, as the 90s unfolded, something of a great decade. And even Bob Gordon talks about progress in productivity, significant progress made in the 1990s. I wonder whether we're at the cusp of something now, but the popular narrative is just so down we don't even realize it's happening before our eyes. Well, that's going to keep us busy for the next uh, 10 or 20 years trying to answer these questions and uh, talk about them with our audience, right, Dan? Thank goodness. Benchmark will be back next week, and until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. And while you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at Daniel Moss DC, at Scott Landman, and our guest is at, at Eric Brin. See you next week. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.